2: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to two authors of the book Law and the Economy in a Young Democracy, India, 1947 and Beyond, published by University of Chicago Press in 2022. I have the two authors with me today, Dr. Tirtankar Roy and Dr. Anand Swamy. To discuss what they present in this book as an essential history of India's economic growth since 1947, including the legal reforms that have shaped the country in the shadow of colonial rule. They argue that this colonial um, history left quite an unequal society with a complicated structure in terms of how the economy and law work together or don't, that they investigate through a number of different aspects, including land rights, um, land ownership, rural credit and a number of other areas. Um, So this conversation will be quite interesting to understand uh, quite a complex topic that is presented through this book in a number of areas that make sense and are very clear in and of themselves and then builds to form a complete picture. So very pleased to welcome you both onto the podcast, Dr. Roy and Dr. Swami.
0: Thank you, Miranda. Happy to be here. Happy to be here too, yes. Thank you.
2: So I was wondering if I could ask you to start off each introducing yourselves um, sort of how you came together to write this book with the caveat that this is actually the second book that you've written together. um, And in a lot of ways, the sort of sequel to the first one. So I suppose the obvious answer is how you came to write this book is, well, you had already written one together, Um, but maybe you could introduce us to your individual academic backgrounds and how you came together on the overall project.
0: Right. So we decided that I would go first, Miranda. So, so for me, actually the, the, Origins of these two books will go back a pretty long way. Um, I usually work in India; um, it's either you con- a contemporary post-independent uh, India as well as colonial India. And you know, early in my career in the nineteen the nineties, that a new institutional economics was really in vogue. You know, this was you know linked to the work of Douglas North and others. And the basic idea was that the West had become rich because of secure property and contract enforcement and the development of the legal institutions that underlay, you know, that the development of legal institutions have been important for this. And um, it struck me when I was reading this that actually these intuitions didn't sound new to me, um, that I'd learned about colonial India and I'd heard many of these arguments then, uh, but in fact, the history, the Indian economic history had not uh, it had not portrayed these changes in such a favorable light. Um, and so I wrote a paper with a co-author called Rachel Tranton sort of looking into some of this, trying to unpack um, exactly how this thinking had played out in one part of colonial India. This was just one paper. Um, and then as time went by, you know, there was this really visible and Uh, really highly visible literature uh, by Rafael Laporta and Andre Steifer and so on, arguing that for a developing country, it was a huge uh, plus to have a common law, an English common law, legal inheritance. So, So for me, growing up in India, you know, the law was always, we always thought of the law as a disaster area. The last thing you wanted to do was get mixed up with the law courts were slow, everything was really messy. And so it really was counterintuitive, um, this idea that the English common law inheritance was a good thing. So at, that's the point at which um, Tirthankar and I, we, we'd met before, but we met sort of, I think, I guess, systematically or in a more sustained way at a conference on law. And we realized we had this shared interest and we decided to actually to write the first book, which is about um, really how about the, about the evolution of British Indian law uh, as it pertained to the economy? And then, when we finished the first book, the concluding chapter was quite naturally okay, so how did this play out? I and mean, what how did the colonial legacy play out in independent India? And so, we wrote a short concluding chapter, and a little while after that, I think we realized that that was actually the prospectus for the next book that is instead of simply dipping our toes into how it played out, we might actually study that systematically. And that's how the second book came to be.
2: Ah, I see. Okay. Anything to add here, Tonkar?
1: Yes. Well, um, uh, law economy, my uh, main field of uh, expertise is South Asian economic history, which is a subject I taught in LSE uh, since 2006 and taught, taught it before. Um, and uh, as mentioned, i mentioned some of the same readings in applied institutional economics uh, i had to teach in the classroom and uh, a problem came up that uh, the uh, the message of these readings didn't quite didn't seem compatible with the extensive the tone of the extensive literature on uh, legislation in colonial india um, much of that literature takes it for granted that law was a tool of governance and power, whereas the economics uh, literature suggested that it was solving certain problems, making markets work better. And uh, it's that anomaly that drove uh, me uh, into investigating more uh, deeply into uh, property rights, contract law. And as Arun said, we had been in conversation almost since then. I and mean, We had this shared um, agenda, if you like, um, the, uh, so that's the first book, uh, law and the economy in colonial India, that was published in 2016. I think the idea of the second book uh, came quite naturally, quite organically from the first book. Uh, initially, we thought, why not write a sequel uh, to complete that story? Um, and uh, you know, we have already produced uh, Die Hard One. How much more work could it be to produce <laughs> Die Hard Two or Three? But then when we embarked on that project, we uh, realized very quickly that, in fact, post-colonial law is a completely different animal. And uh, it is different because uh, there is, of course, a huge legacy inheritance from the colonial times, which passes on. But uh, a lot of legislation has actually been trying to change that and change it by drawing on the Constitution of India, which creates a legislative reference point. And also by pursuing developmentalism, trying to create certain kind of enterprise, trying to generate industrialization, that requires different laws. So our second book is more about this uh, tension in legislative process between the colonial legacy and um, trying to uh, 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 and trying to meet certain political and economic goals. Hmm.
0: And I'll just add to that, uh, Miranda, that. Um, I think what we also realized, I mean, one big difference was, of course, that India was a democracy right from the beginning, and that that democracy became sort of much more substantive uh, as time went by. And so that really played into the way the law changed how development policy worked and how, in fact, how hard it is to change things some of the time. So that's where the word democracy crept into the title of the second book.
2: Always good to explain and understand how titles come to be. Um, It's often quite a process, I found. Um, So to start with this idea, taking, obviously, we're not going to be able to cover everything in the book, um, but I want to sort of touch on a lot of the main points you make. And I think one of the really interesting places to start is land reform, um, which does, as you suggest through the book, have both influence from the colonial era, but then also some changes going on um, and end up. And something of a complicated place, and the quote that sort of stuck out to me is uh, ambivalence regarding transfers of land, both temporary, e.g. lease, and permanent, e.g. sale, that there is ambivalence around this. So why? What why in post-independence India was there sort of confusion, mixed feelings um, around this idea of transfers of land when it came to land reform?
0: So, I think actually the answer to this actually does go back to the colonial period. So, you
2: know, you know, right from
0: at least the 1870s, um, there is this discourse or this this conversation going on among even within British officialdom that the participation in land markets is risky for poor people. And so, I mean, so I'm going to give you a somewhat long, longish answer to this question. Uh, Miranda, but I think you said that was fine.
2: No, please um, do. It's, a, it's uh, a really important topic that you prove in the book. So please do share the kind of depth of thinking in it.
0: Okay. So I guess the first thing to note, to remember, I mean, it's kind of obvious, is that you know, in an economy like that, land is the ultimate asset. Right? It's it's the biggest source of wealth and it's the ultimate sort of insurance against destitution. Um. And when you transfer land, you go through a legal process because you know, property rights are defined and so on. Um, and the Indian legal slow process was and is quite complicated. So you know, when by the 1870s, even, there was this intuition that had become quite strong among British officialdom that poor people can't really handle this legal process Um, that they will get cheated in it, and that in some sense, allowing land transfer, especially um, in the context of mortgage and default, that this really exposes poor people to exploitation. Um, And in in some sense, that intuition is sort of persisted. And there's, and there's other pieces to it. I mean, there's also a kind of paternalistic piece, which is that you know, poor people don't actually know, land is sort of a lump sum value. And if poor people get it into their hands, they'll just waste it. Um, so there's this phrase that a British administrator used, which really stuck in our heads, where they said, you know, giving the property right to land and the right to sell, it's what he called a fatal know, <laughs> It was a boon that the recipient couldn't handle. Um, so that was another sort of paternalistic reason for the British administrators to discourage sort of land transfer. And, uh, and even now, and then finally sort of the, almost the mirror image of that paternalism is that in independent India, even now, you know, when people lose land, uh, for instance, in an eminent domain type of context, they don't want necessarily to be compensated in money. They want to be compensated in land for a similar reason that sort of cash dribbles away um, but land is sort of there to stay. So I think with this combination of things, it's you know the poverty, the need for insurance, and the fear of the legal system that it would cheat poor people. I think that's uh, that's I think part of present day thinking, and it goes back a pretty long way.
2: And so, how does this then impact the ability for land reform to take place once India becomes independent?
0: Well, um, one, one consequence, essentially, is that, it, is that along with the, 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 one of the chapters in our book is um, the first chapter, the first substantive chapter in the book is, uh, I think it's called uh, equity versus transferability. So when land transfer does take place, um, the recipient of the land, who is in principle a poor person, to protect the poor person from himself or herself and from the system, they are often forbidden to actually transfer it. So, if you get the land, you can't sell it, or you can't um, you can't lease it, or there are restrictions on leasing it. So, so it didn't so much prevent that this attitude didn't so much prevent the reform itself from taking place. It then restricted what you could do, that is, the recipient could do once the land had been received.
2: And one of the things that you talk about having a big impact on law, having any ability to influence the economy that comes up with land reform, but also comes up throughout the book, Um, but this might be a good time to mention it because this is this idea of sort of different classes and how that factors in, is you talk about the impact of the lack of ownership records. How does that factor in to land reform particularly but the wider question of law impacting the economy
0: so you know again in, in sort of several different ways i mean so the first is that it made land reform itself difficult so as you remember you know remember the the purpose of land reform is to transfer the land from a wealthier person to a poorer person um, but uh, in in substantial parts of british india especially where there was a system that was called zamindari there was, not, there was very poor record keeping. Um, so if you passed the law which said the land to the tiller, which means the land has to go from the landlord to the tenant, well, then you have to know who the tenant is, and if that's not been recorded, you can't actually, you don't know who to transfer the land to, and if the tenant has just got an oral contract um, without, with no documentation, the landlord will simply evict the tenant to avoid having to transfer the land, so that was sort of the first piece of it that it made that it made land reform itself difficult. But if you think about the present day, there's a whole uh, probably the single biggest problem is that um, you know you in know a, in a growing economy, you know land has to change use from one person to another, or um, and if you're going to buy a piece of land, you have to be confident that the owner has the right to actually sell it. Um, so, so like I'm, I live in the United States right now. When you buy a piece of land um, or you buy a house, for instance, you buy title insurance. Um, someone protects you against this possibility that the owner doesn't really own the property. In India, title insurance is very thin on the ground. uh doesn't exist for most practical purposes uh, because it's so complicated. And so really buying property in India and particularly buying land in India is quite a fraud process, Um, and it's fraud to the point where, you know, some some industrialists or some investors actually want to approach the government and have the government use its eminent domain power um, just to acquire the land, just so that when they get the land from the government, um, the the property right, you know, they know the government actually owns it, and, uh, and they can the property right is, they can be confident in their purchase. So that's probably the biggest uh, problem right now. I mean, there's a off-quoted number, um, which I don't know what its basis is, but it's uh, that 90% of land um, parcels in India are under dispute of some kind. Um, and there's a number that I have a little more faith in, which is that something like 2 thirds of civil disputes in India are, um, are land-related. Um, So so I think that's the biggest thing. Um, There are several other issues. I mean, um, if you want to borrow money, you have to provide collateral. Um, The best form of collateral, or one very good form of collateral, is land, because it's immovable. Um, But if you can't prove that you own it, well, then you can't borrow against it. Um, Similarly, land lease. It makes sense in many contexts to lease out your land but the person who receives the land may squat. Um, and then that would be a problem for you if you don't have a clear title. So if you don't have a clear title, you will hesitate to lease out your property. And, and then there's the, I guess, the most sort of dramatic or uh, how I it, almost sensationalist feature of this problem is in many Indian cities right now, you have what's called a land mafia, which is really... Pretty organized crime, um, where um, which involves the falsification of property. So essentially, the land mafia will seize your property in part by manipulating records, in part by physically occupying your property, and also by via yeah, intimidation. So um, this is actually uh, this is not a small. This is a substantial problem, and actually. Um, I have some personal experience with it, more personal experience with it than I would want. Um, uh, but it's but but this is really a very very visible. If you, if you were to Google land mafia, um, it would give you some of the most colourful reading you would seen in a while. Um, but I think Kirtankar yeah. also wanted to add uh, a little bit to this
1: uh, issue. Yeah, um, just a couple of quick uh, points. Uh, I think that was a, that was quite a comprehensive description of. Um, why the lack of ownership records is a problem. Um, There are two things I want to add to this discussion. One is that um, this problem of transfer of land or immovable property includes uh, another set of transactions, not just buying and selling, but also inheritance, succession, um, testament, uh, gifts, Um, and Uh, That has also been very restrictive. Uh, It's restrictive uh, because of a colonial inheritance, which is uh, the uh, principle that uh, succession of property will be governed by personal law, uh, something that uh, the British uh, Indian legislators thought is a good idea because everything in India is governed by religion. Now, whether that is true or not, uh, personal law is a very exclusive kind of law, uh, only people who belong in certain relationships can then transacting property. Now, uh, post-colonial India has been trying to move away from personal law, but not, not by design because it, it has been quite a messy and chaotic process. And uh, the, the policy uh, hasn't completely shifted away from this religious personal law references. So a lot of uh, that kind of restrictions uh, still persist. The other point I wanted to make is that uh, that's probably a more positive one, is that uh, much of this discussion uh, uh, applies specifically to land and immovable property, Uh, whereas uh, the economic structure has changed. It has changed extremely uh, rapidly, very radically in the last 25, 30 years. uh, With the rise of the services and intellectual property, Um, land ownership is a little more, a little less um, significant in, in, against the against this uh, massive economic transformation um, than it was in, say, in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so some of this discussion has become now context specific. Um, uh, it applies to land ownership, yes, but land ownership is a little less vital to the ongoing uh, economic transformation in India.
0: Okay, so, so I think we took you seriously when you said, don't hesitate to give long answers.
2: No, this is really helpful in expanding um, how we understand the ability of law to impact the economy. So we've now we have sort of a basis, right? We've seen this idea of the colonial and the constitutional. We've seen the idea of kind of problems that arise and how to um, attack them, which brings really nicely to another aspect of the book that you look at, which is rural credit. And in this section, the, you, you argue that quote the law is trying to do too much. why?
0: well, well again sort of just just you know going straight back to the story that you know I had recited a few, you know, five ten minutes ago um, so uh, so again so, uh, so again let me go to some back to some basics. so we're talking about, say 1870 a very poor agricultural economy so output is low and also highly variable the rains might fail all kinds of things might go wrong um and the farmer needs to borrow the the landowner peasant needs to borrow um for the lender there's always the risk that under these circumstances the borrower is not going to be able to repay and so, what's the lender going to do? Charge, which looks a really high rate of interest, which is which will and might be exploitative, or you know, to recover his money. I mean, the lender often was a man, so I, I guess I'm comfortable saying that to recover his money, he may, in bad times, take really harsh steps. Um, so. Uh, so the money lender doesn't never never comes out looking good in this situation um, when this happened in the in late colonial india the british uh, administration sort of identified sort of lender malfeasance as the problem rather than you know the underlying productivity and so on when I mean, i'm oversimplifying a little bit they were quite sophisticated in their thinking uh, but there was this idea that um, the moneylender, you know, the peasant is naive and um, spendthrift and uh, unsophisticated and can't handle the legal system. And the, the moneylender is acquisitive and can uh, has better grasp on the legal system and so on. Um, and so you get this whole slew of legislation to sort of curb the lender in some ways. And if you read the Indian literature... I think going back to the colonial period, some of the ways in which people talk about um, moneylenders would remind you, or at least reminded me, of uh, sort of European anti-Semitism, you know. Um, and so then to regulate, the, to, to keep this uh, moneylender who's trusted so little in check, you pass a series of laws. Um, I guess the most straightforward being a usury law, um, a maximum rate of interest. Um, But there are others, you know, uh, a famous, what's thought of as a traditional Hindu law called Dhamdapat, or only twice as much, which really means that a lender can never get more than twice the original principal um, in repayment, however long the loan has been out. Um, And then there's debt relief, you know, which in present day parlance you would call a, a haircut. Um, you know, legislation which requires the borrower to pay back only a fraction of what um, was originally borrowed, and so on. Um, Those kinds of laws were passed in colonial India, and actually, if anything, are even more intense now than they were. Um, And so if you think about India today, uh, one of the figures we have in our book is that a money lender can only a private money lender can only could only charge twelve percent rate of interest. This is in a context when you've got seven eight percent interest uh, inflation, and the rate that the money lender private money lender can charge is much less than uh, what you would allow a microfinance institution to charge or a bank to charge. Um, so then the only option really is for this person to either go out of business or you drive the honest lender out of business and all the lending takes place sort of off the radar um, by people who are willing to break the law. And so, uh, and the thing is for, since independence, the goal of this has, has been, let's, you know, private money lenders evil, let's push this lender out of business, but it doesn't happen. Probably a third of rural credit um, is still provided by private money lenders. And that's because they provide insurance when things go wrong and a person needs money. The person who's on hand who can lend it quickly without asking too many questions is the private money lender. And so they survive because they they provide a fund, they serve a role. And so I guess the point of that chapter and the point of that line was really that the underlying problem really is low productivity, variable output, and the lack of an insurance market. Um, and you don't actually address that problem by you know t- you know, tweaking the law to undercut or regulate the money lender. And so that's the sense in which the reason that chapter is titled sort of or, or like the sentence said, trying to you're trying to do too much with the law. Because the, the core problem is not law, the core problem is productivity.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Is there any role either of you think law could play to alleviate that? Or is this an area where the impact of law on the economy is one that isn't likely to help even if the policy changed?
0: Well, I mean, I think there is There's certainly a role for law because you know we're not going to deny that there is fraud. Um, and it is true that the lender is often more sophisticated than the borrower. So there do needs to be docu- There does need to be documentation, and you do need safeguards. So um, you know. So the law does have a role to play there, um, uh, but but I but prob- but but I think the bigger role really is. I mean, agricultural productivity, of course, is a long run goal. Uh, but one thing that's somewhat promising is, in more recent times, there's a big push to uh, develop insurance crop insurance um and that may actually make you know the the role of the money lender may decrease because you don't you know there are other ways of getting some cash on hand when you're in trouble
1: if i can jump in here um uh, that's right i mean i think uh, one way that law um, could uh, in fact intervene in this uh, transaction is by um, Uh, by creating some kind of insurance uh, against lenders' risk. Lenders' risk is uh, very high in this world, um, in South Asia, partly because a lot of uh, loans uh, are tied to agricultural operations, uh, trade credit, um, and uh, there is always uh, the climatic factor that your harvest may not be uh, what you expected it to be. Um, But also um, a a substantial part of trade credit and ordinary loans, which uh, are... Uh, made and paid up, paid back within the year are without a collateral, um, unsecured loans. So there is also that risk. Um, uh, the the lender is not always the uh, exploitative evil guy. And th- this person is someone who is in the neighborhood who, who understands the circumstances of the borrower very well, much better than a bank or somebody who is distant from that world. And that's the kind of uh, strength which... Um, uh, the usury laws and uh, restrictive kind of laws uh, missed out completely, that without that information advantage of, the, uh, of this person on the spot, uh, you do not really have a smoothly functioning credit system uh, going.
2: Mm. Yes, that definitely makes sense why law is sort of doing too much and maybe in the wrong places when it comes to rural credit. Um, to move on to a different part of the book, Uh, You talk about environmental law and that this is one area um, where the law has maybe changed the most from colonial times or had the least colonial impact um, to build off of. Um, And you argue that, quote, court activism in environmental law has reinforced a tendency that has been a traditional feature of post-independence Indian economic policy, that is neglect of market mechanisms, which has encouraged rent-seeking. So there's obviously a lot packed into that statement. Um, so I'm wondering if you could sort of start us off a bit with kind of the where we're at with environmental law um, in India from a post looking at post independence and sort of the role of court activism in it, because um, that really does come through in the book as something particularly notable in a few different areas of law, but definitely in the realm of environmental law.
0: Right. So I was I was looking at your list of questions, Miranda, and thinking, but, you know, I probably shouldn't have written, we probably shouldn't have written that sentence that way. There's, there's, there's so much there. Um, but, but I think uh, just going back to where you, your question started, um, you know, the two elements that we focus on in the book are pollution, law pertaining to pollution, and then uh, forest rights. And I think in the forest rights area, there has there is actually a substantial colonial legacy in that the state essentially assumed um, enormous property rights um, uh, over forests, um, often excluding the rights of local communities. And the Indian state pretty much um, retained that structure for a long time um, until at least the 1980s and then since then, there's been much more of really strong push towards um, acknowledging the rights of local communities and local users and, and so on. Um, and then there's a second piece, which is you know, pertaining to pollution. And that, I think, is really not um, many of those issues are contemporary issues. I don't think pollution was a big issue in India in 1920. Um, and there, the Supreme Court has played a really big role in getting, you know, bringing into Indian law, you know, polluter pays and sustainable development and the precautionary principle and so on. And the courts have played a really big role um, uh, in part because the government of India was, a, the legislature was a little bit passive. Um, so that's sort of, the, sort of setting the stage. Um, but I guess I should... If that answers your question, it's a partial answer. Maybe I'll let you ask the next question, Miranda, or maybe... Yeah, to ask, so that,
2: that gives us a very good sort of stage, right, as you said, um, because you argue in the book that the government is sort of a little bit passive and kind of the court fills that gap when it comes to these more um, contemporary issues, as you point out. Um, so how then does this court activism in environmental law, how does that, impact sort of the economic side the neglect of market mechanisms and encouragement of rent seeking
0: yeah yeah. So this is so so i, I guess i'd like to answer this question in the context of particularly forests or common property and so the, again sort of a somewhat longish answer so if we if we back up for a second um and we think about the the overall economic model that India's been operating with much of the world War with is it's a model in which um, to grow rich, you do need to industrialize. So you need to build a factory, you need to build a mine, you need to build a road and so on. And you're probably going to invade, take over someone's private property and you might even do some environmental harm. You're going to cut down the forest and cut down trees and so on. And you, that is, if you're a private buyer, you um, uh, an industrialist or, or, or something, you you do have to pay for it. Uh, that's that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, and it's also true that you know this is complicated legal terrain because everything can't be for sale. So you, to, you cannot have a market for everything. So there are you have to think about biodiversity. Um, you have to think about the rights of indigenous people. A piece of pro, you know, a piece of land may be sacred to us. A community that it's not for sale and it's simply not there's no price to be paid on it so you do need a substantial body of law and regulatory safeguards to think about how land will move from one use to the other from one person to the other um but the thing is at some point you need some streamlining that is if i'm an industrialist I'm applying an investment a substantial investment there needs to be some procedure by which I've paid my money, I've got my clearances, now my project is ready to go, and it can be executed. And I think the point at which we've been in India, especially for the last 15, 20 years, is there's a lot of projects, but the, the regulation's not streamlined, and there are multiple vetoes in the process. Um, there's the state government, there's the central government, there's the forest clearance, there's the environmental clearance, and when there's multiple vetoes in the process, any one of the people who can exercise a veto can ask you for a bribe. Um, and the the courts have actually participated in some sense in the creation of this very elaborate structure, which you know it does. Pro- it, it's it's protective on the one hand, uh, or at least in principle, it's protective on the other hand, but it's also opened up all these opportunities for. What I guess economists like to call rent seeking and with like normal people called bribery um, and so people started talking about green tape and so on. so what this reminds people of is earlier you know before the Indian economy liberalized in 1991 or roughly starting roughly 1991 there was a similar process where to set up a factory to change what you were producing et etc you needed a, a license and a permit that came to be called the License Permit Raj. And again, that led to bribery and so on. So that was this analogy that I was trying, you know, we were trying to draw in this complicated sentence.
2: Got it. Um, And how do you think this has been different in terms of the two aspects of environmental law you focus on? As you said, forest rights and pollution. Has it been the same sort of impact or does it depend on which area we look at?
0: Well, I, I I I did think about this actually because you you asked a really good question. Um, I think the the role of the courts is probably a bit more greater or more um, consequential in when it comes to common property, forests and so on. When it comes to pollution, I think it is true that um, Indian law tends to favor sort of. You know what in econ jargon you would call a quantitative restriction or a ban so for instance you, you would you would have a law which simply says if you're in this industry um this factory this is the pollution standard you have to meet um whereas in some other country you might have uh, you know a carbon trading system and a, and tradable permits uh, which in principle could be more efficient where you could get the same reduction in pollution in a more cost efficient way So I think that is is very much a feature of um, the way pollution is regulated in India. But I don't see the Supreme Court or the courts having had a very big role to play in that.
2: Mm. That makes sense. Um, So moving again to another section of your book, um, you talk about Indian corporate law and you also talk about globalization. You've touched on this almost a little bit in your previous answer about the opening up of the economy. So I was wondering if we could kind of bring those together and focus on them a bit. How has globalization impacted Indian corporate law?
1: Um, One one thing we need to remember is that uh, globalization was um, was, uh, happening throughout the world. It was a goal for many developing countries to realign their economy with the world economy. Uh, in the 1980s, 90s, and uh, in India, there was a significant uh, opinion among economists that this is the this is the future for India to trade more, to receive more foreign investment. And what happened in the le- next uh, 20, 30 years was indeed a very significant rise, almost manifold rise, in both the scale of cross-border capital movements and uh, volume of trade, and also international migration. Um, a volume of cross-border investment both uh, into India and also uh, significant outflow from India, Indians investing abroad. Now that process, which is part of a global process, has been happening and uh, but it didn't exactly um, uh, impose uh, a, a, a kind of necessity for uh, legislative reforms for a long time and many parts of laws didn't actually change. But at the same time, uh, There was a drive that was building up from inside uh, the Indian politics that we need to change a few things to make this uh, flow more stable. Any country which wanted to receive more foreign investment would need to align its laws with global uh, conventions. Um, uh, For example, uh, mergers and acquisitions are a very common way uh, uh, through which a common way for for foreign investment to move into uh, the industrial sector and laws need to make that easier but also uh, uh, quite significantly india was transforming on the trade account into an exporter of services not goods so much but services and legal reform was a condition to participate in services trade more deeply Uh, for example trade in information technology-based services would require systems of uh, intellectual property uh, rights protection now all of these things, if you look, if you go back to the Companies Act before this time, uh, go back to 1960s or 70s, the Companies Act actually permitted all of these things, uh, mergers and acquisitions. There was extensive um, sections which uh, will discuss under what conditions you can do that. What had happened was that these were made uh, quite difficult to carry out in practice. Because of an overlapping influence of certain regulations, acquisitions would require administrative sanction, ministry sanction, or court sanction. And uh, political sentiment uh, was usually against uh, allowing acquisitions of, uh, especially a hostile takeover of an Indian company by a foreign one. Nineteen um, eighty 80s there were a few cases, and uh, these failed. Uh, Mergers were a little easier, but and there were. There were more mergers than acquisitions in the uh, period before globalization. But the number was still small because the courts moved slowly. now the the, the drive uh, leading to legislative reform um, was uh, in response to globalization was to reduce this regulatory overlap, uh, which means um, shifting this approvals process, dispute resolution process away from ministries and courts. To regulators, um, reduce the say of conventional courts and create a parallel judiciary along with a parallel uh, jurisprudence. Um, whereas earlier the goal of um, courts was to make things harder for the companies to uh, create mergers or acquisitions, now the goal was to make them easier. Um, and the, the most important uh, step here is a takeover code, um, the adoption of uh, trade related intellectual property rights agreement. And they move towards overall an investor-friendly exchange regime. Now, this is this is what has been happening through much of the 2000s and 2010s. Um, we have moved beyond that, and uh, you could you could ask uh, this question: So, what what do all this add up to? I mean, have they made it practically easier uh, for uh, more margins, more acquisitions? Well, certainly the numbers have increased, uh, and there has been definitely an increased convergence between international law and Indian law. But how deep the convergence was, convergence has been, uh, you could uh, debate that. Um, the Takeover Code was modeled after the United Kingdom City Code, but uh, the similarity was only in form. Um, most Indian firms, business firms, industrial firms are still family controlled. Um, these are family firms. The shareholding is uh, often very tightly controlled. And uh, some of these families are politically connected. So um, it, it's, 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 not, it's easy to imagine that a hostile takeover will still generate a political backlash. Um, intellectual property also uh, requires, a, requires us to be a, a little more uh, cautious in our optimism um, because there are still areas in IPR which are very uh, kind of gray areas, which are not well defined um in in the software industry in it or business process industry what is the particular kind of innovation that is adding the final value Uh, is very hard to decide because uh, different types of innovations are so uh, interdependent in in the final product Um, then you have a, a field like taxation which actually the book doesn't talk about extensively where political considerations have played quite an explicit role, arbitrary role. Um, so um, it, it's a, it's, it has been a somewhat chaotic uh, picture, but overall there has been an endogenously driven convergence between international law and Indian law.
2: Interesting. Anand, anything you want to add? I don't know if there could be. That was a very comprehensive answer. Thank you.
0: <laughs> no, no, I, I don't really have anything to add to that.
2: Wonderful. Well, again, moving on to another section of the book, hopefully listeners are getting the idea that this book covers a lot of ground, um, but very concisely, actually, um, to dispel any concern. This is not a 700-page book that you'll never finish. Um, So to move on to another section, perhaps referencing labour law, can you explain an instance where the law does constrain economic development and explain kind of why there's no change even though there's an obvious constraint
0: so Tirso, do you want to take this one or should or should i go
1: um you, you could go first uh, talking about maybe labor laws more generally and then i will add uh, an example
0: so i think the most um the, the one that's been most discussed uh Miranda, Israeli, really, um, in 1976 and then in 1982, these laws were passed, which made it very difficult for a firm to let a worker go. Um, so after the 1982 law, essentially, if you were a firm that had more than 100 employees, then to let a worker go, you actually had to approach the government and get permission. And it was going to be very difficult to get that permission. And so a lot of um, economists argued that Indian firms remain small in order to avoid this hassle, and that if you remain small, then you remain unproductive and uncompetitive. And, you know, India really hasn't done quite as well in sort of labor-intensive areas like textiles and so on as it might have. So that's a really strong intuition that really you need, you know, a, you know, a competitive firm might need to be three thousand people, um, and that this law is uh, is really making Indian industry uncompetitive. Um, it's hard to to pin down its exact impact because when if you think like, an, like a sort of formally trained economist for a second, if you've got a problem. You've got to, something to maximize, and there are many constraints. You don't really know which is the one that's biting you or binding you at the moment. Um, so there's been a lot of research on whether this particular legislation um on uh, you know making it hard to let go of a worker, whether how much its impact has had. My reading it is on the whole, it has hurt, um, but it's not clear how big that effect is. Um, On the question of why doesn't it change? I mean, I think that, why has it been so hard to change? I think that goes back to something we started with, which is, um, you know, it's a very poor country. And I think while we often tend to think of growth as being the goal, it's insurance and actually protection from destitution is a very big part of what drives things. So now, if you're an industrial worker in India, a factory worker in India, you're not rich by global standards or middle class by global standards, but you're actually a lot better off than uh, an agricultural worker, a construction worker. And to actually fire such a person, to let a person go is actually to uh, lower their living standards hugely. Um, And so I think there is this reluctance to go down that path for that reason. Um, There's been a big reform of, you know, in labor law in the last one year. Um, uh, And that's essentially meant that the point at which these laws kick in has been raised to 300 workers rather than 100, which is not, when you think about it, such a huge change. Um, But I think that's really, uh, it's this, basically, when I think about the United States, for instance, uh, a firm will fire you and walk you out the door in 15 minutes. Uh, that's it. That's just not the way I think labor work law works in India. And probably that's because, like I said, it's a much poorer country and people are much more vulnerable.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would like to add uh, something to that. I mean, much of the literature which investigates this question looks at the problem uh, from the point of view of the individual business firm. Um But if you take a more macro view, if you look at whole industries, then you see how restrictive labor law could be uh, damaging or could have consequences of a different kind. Um, In the 1950s, uh, the industrial structure that India inherited from the colonial times was mainly dominated by labor intensive uh, factories, things like textiles, plantations. Uh, or uh, commodity trade and processing of some uh, traded articles, uh, mostly agricultural goods. Um, But the the government of independent India decided that they needed a different industrial structure to come into being, uh, which will be dominated by metals, uh, engineering industry, machines and chemicals. Now, that was a radical shift. And uh, one of the implications of that shift was a lot of resources, especially financial resources, was moved out of the traditional businesses by controlling banks, by investment licensing towards these um, new industries that that uh, that were uh, that became the goal of policy. Um, now, if you fast forward about 20, 25 years, move to the 1970s, you could see um, a lot of problems that this uh, decision had created. I mean, there was ma- massive bankruptcy building up in the cotton textile industry, jute textile industry, in the traditional, uh, some traditional engineering industries as well. Um, the plantations had to reorient to domestic market. All of these were exporting products, but they had a, quite a difficult shift towards the domestic market. Uh, whereas uh, the, the machines, chemicals, metals set were government dominated. I mean they were not creating a lot of value because they're often very inefficiently run. And uh, when those sectors opened up in the 1980s and 90s, there was a bankruptcy building there too. Now this, this was an industry-wide bankruptcy and one of the ways <coughs> uh, one of the ways that uh, locked up investment could deal with it, would have been to exit it or reduce workforce, um, redeploy workers to something else that made uh, more profits. That was was extremely difficult. Now, that was difficult not simply because of the law in existence. Uh, The labor law, if you look at Factory Act or other related acts, would uh, permit uh, businesses to do this. Um, to redeploy labor, that's that's available. That option is available. However, there are regulatory overlaps and leg- regulatory obstacles. You you want to do that? Okay, take permission from the ministry or the labor commissioner, and that permission will never uh, be given. Um, so it's this uh, regulatory overlap, something that I talked about before, uh, that has been that has had a very damaging effect in dealing with mass uh, industrial bankruptcy uh, without there, there being a legal road which served the employer's interest and allowed for a legal compensation paid to the worker who is retrenched. Often retrenchment was done uh, through uh, through the back door, I mean, just by closing unannounced closure of an industry, uh, used to be called blockouts, which deprived the workers of their dues while making them unemployed. Now, no one really benefited from this and investment suffered. I'm going back to your original question about how it constrains economic development.
2: Hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. It's helpful to have the background and the examples interwoven. The beauty, I'm sure, of having two of you writing a book. You don't have to both do everything. Um, So again, continuing our tour of the book, um, another quotation to repeat back to the people who wrote it. Um, Why do you consider the progression of property law and inheritance to be, quote, a gradual and torturous process of extraction from colonial roots. You've spoken about this a little bit already in terms of identity groups and relationships, but could you tell us a little little bit more about this one?
1: Well, uh, maybe a a little bit more, uh, not a lot, but the fundamental problem uh, we have already discussed before, which is the colonial inheritance, the British uh, Indian legacy, uh, to decide to keep property, succession, and inheritance subject to personal law and then design personal law after religious scriptures. Um, for some reason, the early legislators thought that Hinduism and Islam governs the Indian society, so let's uh, respect those. And indeed, uh, if you go back to some of the scriptures, there, there are extensive uh, instructions about, uh, how, about conduct of life. I mean, some of these could look like um, legal uh, statements. Um, so they tried to um, take those statements, uh, put them in the law books, and then appoint uh, experts on Hinduism and Islam in the courts. I mean, I'm talking about the mid-19th century, early 19th century. That's how this uh, reference to personal law came into being. But uh, in the long run, it created huge problems, I mean, three types of problems particularly. First of all, no one knew if religious scriptures reflected real practice on the ground. I mean, there were no case laws available um, no evidence, uh, very little actually evidence coming from the courts uh, which did indeed make subtle cases disputes with reference to religion. Secondly, um, scriptures did not speak in one voice. Um, there was a considerable difference between uh, within Hinduism between different regions, different types of uh, legal uh, uh, different types of religious documents which enter this field, Um, between Shias and Sunnis um, within Islam and uh, the Indian Islamic practices are very different from uh, other Islamic practices elsewhere in the world. So it's, um, I mean, you do not really get a coordinated, coherent um, body of uh, law by referring to religious scriptures. The third uh, very significant problem was that most religious law restricted women's rights to inheritance and succeed property. Um there was not much difference between Islam and Hinduism in this case, allowing what was called a life interest, a kind of pension to women, uh, but not really a, a equal right to partition and inherit on a, on a on the same basis as men could uh, men in the inside the extended family could claim now uh, you can imagine that this is going to be a, a hugely disputable thing and it was a disputable thing right from the 19th century so this is a story which starts from the uh, early 19th century and extends well into the post-colonial times there's a it's a continuous series of um, disputation challenge legislative response um, law has slowly moved away from these roots if you take a 150 year long view but it has often done piecemeal and through uh, case laws through individual cases. quite a few of these uh, landmark judgments uh, in the 1980s and 90s, uh, but um, not completely, not uh, by uh, an announced uh, decision to create a uniform law, uniform civil law for all uh, citizens of the country.
2: And so this as you said, is a, a torturous process of extraction. How do you see this playing out as it continues? How, how is that extraction going to, what's that trajectory look like?
1: Well, in practice, uh, well, first of all, um, this inheritance and succession uh, problems really matter to, as I said before, in, in land or immovable property, sometimes business assets, uh, much more than say intellectual property. And of course, uh, the big story, of globalization is the uh, enormously uh, 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 increased, uh, uh, very, uh, very significant increase in the participation of women in uh, both industry, in manufacturing industry as well as services. Um, so uh, the the problem isn't as um, Uh, as binding as it was maybe in the 1950s or 60s when it was uh, really quite serious and and created a lot of disputes within families. However, uh, in practice, state law, um, federal law, has moved away from religious reference, personal law, quite steadily. Um, Several disputes in the 1980s challenged uh, personal law and succeeded. The Supreme Court often uh, created judgments which uh, very emphatically um, moved towards equality between men and women. Um, The problem might still arise if you have a succession where uh, the original owner, maybe the father of a daughter, hasn't left uh, a clear instruction, clear testament, and there are rival claimants. You might still see personal law kick in. Somebody coming in and saying that, well, I have a claim by being related to the family in this way. Um, and These are very rare nowadays, so I think uh, the overall uh, the overall trend is quite clear.
0: And I'd probably like to just add to that, Miranda. That especially since the 1980s, you know, there's a strong women's movement in India, and of course. Sort of a larger global conversation about the rights of women and so you know, the law is changing and practicing is changing in a very dis- different context right I mean there's mm-hmm. these are not controversial issues anymore the way they would have been I mean, or the idea that women should have equal rights to property is not controversial at all in the way that it was say when it just was first independent
2: mm-hmm. yeah I think I think that makes a lot of sense um And sort of that brings me nicely to my next question, um, which is, um, you introduced the book with five questions and we've sort of without necessarily listing them have gone through a number in our discussion. Um, And you raise this interesting one at the end and I was sort of hoping to ask you about it, which is how much did case law and precedence as opposed to legislation matter to the evolution of law in post-independence India. And so given that we've just sort of talked about this idea of the extraction and the trajectory and how the debates around the laws can really influence kind of what happens, what would be your answer to this? How much does case law and precedence make a difference?
0: So I think in in three areas. So first, very quickly, when we talked about land reforms at the beginning of this conversation, Um, There was a tension between the idea that you would redistribute land from rich to poor on the one hand and the fact that the Indian Constitution also gave you the right to property. And so the way land reforms played out time and again was a state legislature would pass a law uh, to transfer land. It would then get challenged in the high court, the state high court, by the landowners. The high court would support them. Um, the law would be struck down. The state government would then go to the center and get legislation passed to um, over, you know, to basically a new legislation that would make their law legal. And there's a big controversy, you know, there was a device called the Ninth Schedule, which created a kind of constitutional shelter for um, all these legislations to, be, to, to pass and survive constitutionality, the test of constitutionality. Um, so that's a whole long story, but the effect of it really was that the case laws and the participants, it slowed down the process so that uh, once between a land reform legislation being passed and it being implemented it was a very long period. And that gave landowners a chance to take evasive action. So that's sort of going back more recently. I think probably the where case law has really mattered is in environmental law. Like I said, uh, you know I've talked about polluter pays and so on. Um, the precautionary principle. Um, you know uh, so the Indian government was relatively slow to legislate on um, environmental questions, especially pollution. And the Supreme Court in the 1980s had sort of simplified its procedures, made it easier for people to approach the court via public interest litigation. Um, and it it took a pretty broad view of the right to life in the Indian constitution. And then via case law it passed, I recognize polluter pays, sustainable development, precautionary principle, and so on, which have now um, become sort of foundational. And I think that's probably the biggest, the most prominent case um, where the court, where case law has really mattered uh, to my view. Um, There's another, uh, example, which I'll discuss, in, which we discuss in the book, I'll just mention that briefly, which is the rights of street vendors. It's really quite interesting. Where if you go to an Indian city, even now, street vending is ubiquitous, and the question is, what are the rights of those people? And um, initially, they were very much at the mercy of the local policeman or the official. And it's via public interest litigation and via series of court judgments that eventually legislation was passed, sort of, you know, creating a somewhat systematic framework of licensing and so on. So that's another example where um, it was caseload that drove legislation, um, but it's, that's relatively new, the legislation is 2014, and time will tell how much of an impact it has. Yeah, um, the one,
2: um
1: example i want to add to this list uh, is the personal law and property succession especially women's uh, access to uh, equal rights has been um i i, I think uh, especially for uh, christians and uh, muslims um, the the effect of case law has been uh, extremely uh, deep um there were two landmark cases in the 1980s Um, One about partition of an estate, uh, the case called Mary Roy versus State of Kerala, where uh, the court uh, overturned the provisions of an old princely state act called the Travancore Christian Succession Act, which gave uh, women uh, in the family uh, much less than men. And uh, that was overturned. And then in uh, 1985, I think, uh, the Shah Bano Judgment, which was about a divorce settlement, where, again, the Supreme Court overturned the uh, strict provisions um, that were, uh, uh, that were uh, uh, detailed in the scriptures. Now, the, these two cases were landmarks, not necessarily because they changed law forever. In fact, in Shabana's case, the reaction of the legislators was just the opposite, that they uh, uh, changed back uh, to, the, to the letter of the scripture. However, Any subsequent divorce case which brings up the same issues are more likely to refer back to these cases, especially Shabana judgment, and is likely to settle a much more equitable law, no matter much more equitable settlement, no matter what the letter of the law says, because uh, the sentiment because of the uh, existence of this case has changed the terms of disputation completely. Um, I think I think that has been a very significant effect, even when formal law hasn't changed.
2: Thank you for adding in that example. I think that's really interesting. Um, So now that I've asked you about all sorts of aspects of your book, um, I'm interested to sort of peek behind the curtain a bit of your process. Um, And a question that I ask all of the authors who I interview is, given that you've spent obviously a lot of time on this topic, not just in this book, but in the other one as well, Um, is there something in particular that you came across in the research or the writing of this book that surprised you? This can be big or small. Maybe sometimes it's stuff that didn't even get included in the final book. Um, But is there anything maybe that stuck out to either of you?
0: So I guess I'll go first on that, Miranda. I mean, it was, um, was, I guess, maybe not a really pleasant surprise. Um, We had thought, Going into the first book in particular, that you know there would be a you know, that we would do some work and eventually you know, a, a clear overarching theme would emerge. You know, and and the the template that was available there, of course, was colonial power and the exploitative nature of colonialism. But eventually, I guess what we what we realized was that um, you needed to think differently about at least a few different domains um, that. If you wanted to look at a trajectory over two hundred years, the way you talked about land, and the way you talked about company law, um, or the way you talked about the rights of women, um, were actually going to have to be quite different. Um, And we eventually we and we we let that happen. I mean, we we didn't try to force fit a common structure on what did seem like significantly different trajectories. so, so, so it wasn't a single thing. It was just a broader realization that this was a more complicated story than we had thought going in. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, something along the same lines. I mean, when we uh, started this project about eight years ago, um, there were two quite radically different views about how institutions of capitalism, like property contract, contractor company, evolved in the developing world. And many economists claim that these were of Western origin. European colonial rule carried these good Western inheritance to places like India. It's a gift that the West delivered to the South. Many historians, on the other hand, claimed that laws consolidated political power. It was a tool in the hands of colonialism and hardly a gift. Now, Our our first foray into this field showed that the overlap between law and politics was really close. Yes, but it was close in certain areas, in property and credit and not always in the way the historians saw it. Um, On the other hand, in contract, corporate law was uh, more of a Western transplant, but not because of colonialism, because Indian business was more integrated with the world economy in the 19th century, and the parity in law was inevitable. Now, something uh, rather similar uh, lesson has again reappeared in the second book, that the law and politics are indeed interdependent, but not in a predictable way. Um, And uh, what we... What we discuss in the post-colonial times is, um, this, is this tension between uh, a new kind of politics, new kind of priorities, especially uh, developmental priorities, and an existing infrastructure of Part of it conforms to um, and meets those priorities. Part of it doesn't. But what doesn't you observe in the courtrooms through disputation, Not always can can anticipate. So it's not. Legislation we are observing, we are also observing disputes.
2: Interesting. I'm always glad I asked that question because you get such useful insights to sort of understand the book. I almost feel like if I went back and read the conclusion now, I'd have a different thought on it. Um, um,
0: I'll just add one point to that uh, observation, Miranda, which is that, you know, just learning economic history in in college, for instance, there's this broad idea that the British Raj was largely laissez-faire, that it didn't interfere much in the economy. And one thing that became clear was that that might have been true for trade or industry, but when it came to land and property, that was not the case at all. Uh, That it was very interventionist on land and credit from at least the late 19th century.
2: Mm. That's definitely something that comes through very strongly in the book. Um, And I admit, I was surprised by um, the level of detail that they really did go into um so i'm glad you sort of surfaced that up for us um and for my final question which feels a bit mean uh because this book has just come out and it's obviously the second book of a massive project so i imagine you're both maybe a bit exhausted um but i still want to ask either separately or together what are you working on now or next
1: should we should i go first um several projects um, Arand will uh, talk about uh, some of these, but one uh, project in particular that we are both um, and we have a third uh, person in the team uh, Professor Obirup um, uh, Sharkar of Calcutta um, we are quite excited about is a book series that is that's been approved and uh, has been launched by the Cambridge University Press in India called the economic histories of Indian states um, some of these states as you know uh, are as large as uh, some of the European countries the largest European countries um, and they are also enormously uh, co- complex uh, uh, entities in terms of politics uh, in terms of geography and and their own evolution it had, it has all uh, I mean, that history the post-colonial history has not all coordinated by the federal government or by a mainstream, uh, political current, um, it, it, states have moved quite uh, in, uh, along quite different pathways, and we thought that we will try to capture that in this book series. And um, to our great uh, satisfaction, there was a lot of interest uh, in the uh, among the people that we talked to, whether they'll will be willing to contribute uh, subject to the series. We are contributors ourselves, and. Uh, Overall, the response has been extremely uh, encouraging. It seemed like an idea waiting to happen, waiting to be put in practice. So far, I don't think any of us have written a single line on this on our respective projects, but we are hugely excited.
2: (laughs) It sounds very interesting.
0: Um, And I just want to mention briefly, uh, Miranda, um, as you know, our two books straddle colonial and post-colonial India, and I think that's something we both want to do. So, the two of us and Latika Chaudhary of the Naval Postgraduate School in uh, California, we're co editing um, a volume called The Cambridge Economic History of Modern South Asia, Mm -hmm. um, which really spans the colonial and post colonial periods. Um, In some ways, it's an update of the previous Cambridge Economic History, which is now 1983. Um, So, it's newer, it picks up the newer literature. But I think uh, one of the things that excites me the most about it is, like I said, I've always viewed the the division between colonial and post-colonial India as a little bit too strong and in some ways artificial, and so the volume will actually try to break down that separation to some extent.
2: I think that will be really interesting, um, particularly given that we definitely need an update since 1983 (laughs) So I'm glad that you're providing that as well as complicating the picture. Um, And I'm sure that a lot of listeners will be interested to read both of those projects when they come out. Um, But in the meantime, they can read your current book titled Law and the Economy in a Young Democracy, India, 1947 and Beyond, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. And you have been listening to both of the authors of the book. Dr. Tirtankar Roy, and Dr. Anand Swamy, thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Miranda. It's been a great pleasure.